Well, good morning. I picked a good day to uh, do both. It's not hot. It's not, you know, stuffy. So, <sighs> good morning. How are you guys doing? Um, prayer. We're going to be uh, continuing in the prayer series that we started last week. And Pastor Daniel laid out for us pretty succinctly where we're going in this. Last week, he talked about talking to God, and that's, you know, using Scripture like the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer to give us language, how to pray, kind of developing that spiritual muscle memory on the words that we use to talk to God. Today, we're going to talk about talking with God, and then next week, we'll primarily talk about listening to God. Now, as Daniel rightly said last week, these aren't really ranks of spiritual advancement, but they're more like a spectrum of spiritual experience. As we grow in our walks as people who follow Jesus, we find that we never really outgrow talking to God. We'll often need to return to the Psalms, to the Lord's Prayer, to give us language for our talk to God. But as that becomes more familiar... We can advance into these new frontiers, this new territory. We start to learn the language of prayer. We get that spiritual muscle memory. And as we do, we move from talking to God to talking with God. It gets much more conversational. I do want to continue to emphasize that this doesn't mean we're now too mature to use Scripture, the written words of Scripture, as our prayers, relying on its words to carry our prayers along. We can't really have a conversation without learning how to speak, without developing the right vocabulary, a grammar of prayer, as it were. And we also can't have a conversation without listening. Again, we'll talk about that next week, but both this talking to and this listening to are vital components of our talking with God, our conversation with him. Now, before we dive in this morning, I feel like I need to make a clarification of sorts right up front. I am preaching from weakness in this area. I don't have a perfect, well-honed, long-practiced prayer life, but I'm also preaching from the battlefield. I and my family are in the midst of a battle for a vibrant prayer life. We see that. We want that. We don't have it, but we want to have it. We're fighting towards that end. So this is going to be less like a field guide from an experienced commander and more like a recruit limping in from the front lines to give a report on what works and what doesn't. So before we dive in this morning, let's just take a moment and pray again. Well, Father, I ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts this morning that you would help me to speak what ought to be spoken and not to speak what shouldn't be said. You would give me power and humility at the same time and you would help your people to hear your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So the main idea I want us to kind of come away with this morning is that the entirety of our thought life, what goes on in our heads, is an opportunity for prayer. Prayer is more than just a scheduled activity. 
It's the way we live as Christians so that our very lives are conversations with God. As we step through this, we'll see, I'll first talk a little bit about what it looks like to pray without ceasing, and then prayer in contrast to what we can call self-talk, and then practicing prayer to redeem our thought life. So, prayer without ceasing. This is a verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 that, if you're anything like me, is a little bit troubling. You know, in verse 17, Paul gives this loaded exhortation, pray without ceasing. He says a similar thing in Ephesians 6.18. He says, pray at all times. Now, without ceasing at all times are pretty grand statements. He can't really mean that, can he? I mean, it depends what we think prayer is. If we think prayer is only the time we spend on our knees in the morning, in the evening, or before meals, then this is impossible. We need to do other things. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We need to work. Paul was doing other things besides praying, wasn't he? He was planting churches, pastoring churches. He wrote this letter. If we put prayer in a box and we think of it only as an activity with a specific time slot, we miss out on what Paul, through the Spirit of God, is really saying here. Now, this has been a bit of a journey for me personally. I'm a recovering legalist, I like to say. When I see a command, I approach it as nothing but a requirement, a law, as it were, right? I buckle down, I try and get, get it done. Then I, whenever I would come across this verse, it would be devastating because on its face, it's impossible. I can't be praying all the time. This led me to one of the most important and relatively recent experiences and kind of shifts in my pilgrim journey. Now I try and see commands of scriptures as opportunities, opportunities to grow closer to God. These things are also requirements to grow closer to God, but we miss something if we don't pair requirement and opportunity. The grace of the gospel is that we can grow into the life of Jesus and not rigidly impose it on ourselves. We aren't supposed to do it all at once. We can't handle that. We're made for a slow and steady sanctification, a long obedience in the same direction. A proverb that's been supremely helpful for me in this area is Proverbs 13:11. It says, "Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it." That's true of spiritual wealth as well. We learn bit by bit, and bit by bit we're reformed, recreated into the image of Jesus. So when I had this paradigm shift, as it were, I initially took it as a license to stop whatever regular practice prayer times I had. And that didn't work either, because I wasn't practiced in prayer. I didn't have the language, the spiritual muscle memory. I rightly saw Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing as an invitation to live by prayer. But the call to prayer as a way of life has meant engaging in intentional times and practices of prayer as practice for daily life. As we practice prayer intentionally in these specific ways with specific foci, we start to become more natural, more reflexive, but we need practice. Once we establish that firm foundation, we can advance to those other frontiers. 
We can start to recapture our thought life and turn it from idle or even destructive self-talk into life-giving, life-changing prayer. It's not always about starting some new expensive, expansive practice. Often it's about doing the same things we're already doing, but inviting God into those things to start to reform, to recreate our thoughts, and to, be give us, to begin to give us the mind of Christ. Prayer versus self-talk. There's a difference here between what we call prayer and self-talk. And it's hard to separate them sometimes because they both usually go on in our heads, right? So let me give an example. After a day of work, I usually have about a 30-minute drive home, right? And during that 30 minutes, I often find myself thoughtlessly rehearsing scenarios that may or may not happen at work. And I'm like indignantly defending myself against this slight on my character that definitely probably isn't going to happen. But I'm saying these things. I'm saying them out loud often. Like I'm rehearsing like I'm in an acting class. This is what I'm talking about. These internal, sometimes external monologues that take up so much of our daily churn in our head, our thought life. So what I'm proposing is that this, we can recapture this. We can take a thing that is so common to the human experience, this ever-flowing stream of thoughts, and turn that into prayer. We're already doing it. We just need to redirect it. We should be inviting God into our thought life, presenting it to him, opening it up to him, allowing him to work on it. In short, having a thought life that isn't a feedback loop in our own heads, but an open conversation with God. He's already listening. He knows what you're thinking, right? Can you imagine if you like, went on a date with your significant other or your spouse and you sat down at the restaurant and the entire time they just talked to themselves, looking down, looking at the table, didn't say a word to you? That's what we do to God sometimes, right? We're so in our own heads down here thinking about it and he's just sitting across the table looking at us like, waiting for us to say something to him. Scripture has words for this, this recapturing of our thought life. And 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive. It's a battle. There are enemy strongholds in our minds, and if we let them be, they will wreak havoc on our souls. This can be family history, stuff from your family of origin, ways that your family thought, acted, behave, and taught you to think and act and behave that you now have to kind of rethink. This can be influences from the culture, ways the culture has portrayed what is good and what is bad that you've absorbed unconsciously and then living out in your daily life. Jesus invites us to go into battle alongside him to break these strongholds down and build up the fortresses of heaven in our minds in their place. That's the work of this kind of prayer I'm proposing, this recapturing of our thought life. Let me give you yet another metaphor because I haven't given you enough already. Our minds can be like ponds, 
You know, stagnant bodies of water with no discernible flow to or from them. As that water sits there, it collects bacteria, dirt, and grime, and soon enough it becomes poisonous. You don't want to drink from a stagnant body of water. But when we channel our thoughts out into the ocean of God and allow him to pour back into us, the moving living water becomes refreshing and life-giving. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 12 when he says, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we're about to get really practical now. I'd like to take a little time to really lay out what all of this looks like in her life. It's easy to get overwhelmed with all the ways we could tackle something as expansive as completely reorienting our thought life, right? That's just a lot to think about. So I'd like to give us some categories of prayer and how they can move us from A to B. There was an acronym that someone, I think it was probably Ed Marcel, that he used a while ago and I found very useful. The acronym is ACTS, A-C-T-S. That stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Now, this isn't a complete list of the different modes of prayer that we can take part in. It might not even be the best list, but there's a quote that makes it around my office by British statistician George Box. He once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Whenever we suggest some quick rule of thumb or an easy acronym, we're almost certainly incomplete or lacking some kind of nuance. That said... They can be helpful and good outlines for us and guardrails until we're ready to step away from them. So for each of these practices of prayer I'm going to discuss, I want to give a series of scriptures that explain the biblical idea behind them, then briefly talk through how we might experience these things as self-talk in our own inner thought life without God. And then I'll suggest how we can reorient ourselves through practicing these kinds of prayer, capturing those thoughts, bringing them to God, and working alongside him to tear down these strongholds and replace them with better things. Let's start with adoration. As far as scripture is concerned, we see this all throughout the Psalms, but Psalms 148 and 150, particularly the final three Psalms of the Psalter, are just full of this. It almost, you, you read them and you're like, this is getting a little repetitive now. But they're just full of adoration for God and who he is. We see it in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We see it at the end of scripture as well. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, we see recorded by John a vision of God's throne room. And it's full of people worshiping God. And they say, and he says that they cast down their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the aspect of adoration I want to hone in on this morning. Adoration is recognizing that everything good, true, and beautiful has its source in God. And the result of that should be this. We look at our power, our glory, and whatever honor we have, and we realize it's a drop in the bucket compared to what God has. 
But how does it usually happen? I'll tell you how it happens most often for me. I'll find a band or a song I really like, right? I need to share it with people, and I need to know that they like it. I interrupted Matt, I think, twice this week in your office to give you a song that I'm like, you need to listen to this now and give me your feedback. Why do I do this, though? Well, maybe it's because I want Matt to enjoy the same glimpses of beauty that I got, but if I'm honest with myself, that's usually not what's happening. Often, I want Matt to listen to the song that I sent to him, then look at me and say, wow, you have a really good taste in music, right? If I recommend a coffee shop to one of you, more often than not, I don't want you to enjoy the coffee. I want you to come away from that experience saying, wow, Madison really knows his coffee. That was a really good recommendation. Maybe we overindulge in beautiful things to the point where they feed something ugly in us. We go to a restaurant that just makes the best food, but we gorge ourselves, we empty our wallets to fill our appetites for decadence. Maybe for you it's sports. Watching elite players at the pinnacle of the careers is awesome, but it it can become all-consuming in certain seasons. We become gluttons for entertainment. I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy any of these things. We should. Just don't cut God out of it. He is the architect of all excellence, the artist behind all beauty, and the author of all life. He has created this world for you to enjoy it, but not without him. Some of us have kids. When they create a piece of art, they can't wait to show it to you, right? They can't wait. You need to see it. Why? They want you to enjoy it with them and to recognize their brilliance. When you do a good job at work, you don't want to go unnoticed. You want someone to recognize it and say, hey, you did a really good job on that. Well done. Is it so ridiculous to think that God wants the same from us? He wants us to enjoy his creation with him. He wants us to invite him into a our enjoyment of his blessings, and he wants us to give him the glory he's rightly due as the creator of the universe. We can shift our enjoyment of God's creation from indulgence and jockeying for status into throwing our crowns at Jesus' feet in awe of his artistry, of the beauty we enjoy. And we get out of our feedback loop. We invite God in, and he refreshes that experience. I have stories about this. I don't have time to go into them, but this is the one actually of the four we're going to talk about that hits me the most. So if you have questions about this, you can come up after and I'll talk your ear off and you will be, you'll regret doing it. But I have experienced this firsthand. The enjoyment that you get out of these things is so much more significant when God's a part of them. It really is. Let's make an easy transition here from adoration to thanksgiving. We see this all throughout Scripture as well. Ephesians 5.20 tells us to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18 likewise instructs us in everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 
Last couple weeks, we've been singing a spruced-up version of an old hymn taken from Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. It's hard to explain how this goes rotten in our own heads, but when we shut God out of our thought life, it does. It happens to me. We're trying to teach Claire, our three-year-old, well, three in a couple weeks here, how to pray by herself. And we're starting with gratitude, right? We're teaching her how to be thankful for things. At dinner, we'll, sit, we'll ask her what she's been thankful for. At bedtime, when I'm praying with her, I'll say, okay, baby girl, what are you thankful for today? And she just starts looking around the room. She's like, I'm thankful for my lamp and my picture and my toys. She just starts naming things in the room. And my, my reaction to that is, oh, come on, give a better answer than that. You got to give me a nice theologically robust answer. You can't be thankful for those things. And that's, that's where it goes wrong, right? We should have the hearts of children when it comes to gratitude. We should look around the room and be stunned by all the things that God has given to us. Instead, we get used to them. We get used to what we've been given. We start to think that we can only be thankful for new stuff. We become entitled to what we have instead of being thankful for all of it. We begin to rely on the gift instead of relying on God, the giver of all good things. God has given us blessings as a reminder of his provision for us, yet we find a way to use them to rely on him less. We shut him out. We should all be a little more like Claire. That requires practice. Funny, isn't it? You have to practice to get the heart that of a child. A while ago, my wife started a gratitude journal, writing one thing down a day that she was truly grateful for. That's a good idea. That's how you practice these kinds of things. We should be more like Johnny Herb. I told him I was going to mention him today. I didn't tell him why. Our bass player this morning, by the way, if you don't know him. I've never told him this, but the way he starts his prayers has always struck me. He did it this morning right before rehearsal. I think almost every time I hear him pray, he starts by saying, God, thanks for waking us up this morning. That's where we need to be, right? That's what we need to know. We need to know that everything we have is a gift. We should work to remember that they're all good things and that all good things are gifts from God and we should move our hearts to open to him and move towards him, not away. Knowing that God is the giver of all good gifts, we should not just be thankful for the ones he has, but the ones that he, sorry, we should not just be thankful for what we have, but we should ask for more. This is called supplication or petition or intercession if you're asking for blessings to fall on somebody else. This is what most people maybe most people, first think of when we think of prayer. We think of asking for things, right? And that's not entirely unfounded. There's scripture to back that up. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Ephesians six eighteen exhorts us, Be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, 
keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Jesus gives this bold declaration in Luke 18. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. As thankfulness practices gratitude, supplication practices hope. It looks at things as they are and asks a God who can and does change things to make them better. In my experience, though, I can rattle off things I want in prayer, even things I want for others, and the whole time I'll be in my own head. I never actually make an effort to bring myself before God and ask. I very quickly get into this place where I start saying stuff like, why won't you just do it, God? Why are you holding out on me? They realize I've never actually asked him for anything. I've just complained in my head. Never really turned and asked. There's an intimacy to asking that can make us uncomfortable, I think. Imagine asking someone you don't know for $5. Or, hey, can you watch my stuff while I go to the bathroom? Some of us even cringe when we ask a stranger to take a picture for us on the side of the road. There's an intimacy in asking because to ask is to say, there's something I need that I cannot have without your help. I'm helpless in this situation without you. Please help me. That's vulnerable. It can be embarrassing. If we don't have an intimate relationship with God... This same awkwardness plagues our prayers. We beat around the bush and we half-ask things, not really meaning it, not fully committing. If we know God personally, we can ask him with boldness and trust that he will give us good things. One more thing on this. Jesus asked the Father for things. Jesus practiced this kind of prayer all the time. He prayed for his father to bless his disciples in John 18, in that high priestly prayer. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. If you're here this morning and you think that this kind of prayer doesn't work, that it doesn't really change anything, I just want to challenge you to look at Jesus' theology of prayer. He prayed like this. He expected it to make a difference. He also said these words in John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus believes in asking prayer. He believes it changes things if we approach it with the heart of Jesus and ask our Father in intimacy instead of riding the complaint train in our own heads. I know there are people this morning who feel like you've been cheated in prayer. You've trusted in prayer, and in some really important ones, your prayers have been left unanswered. That hurts, and it's hard to know for sure what's happening there, but that's why we hope. Because we know that there is more to come in this story, that this can't be the end. There is more 
to this story. Lastly, we come to confession. And for the purposes of the acronym, I've kept, I've kept it as confession, but I'd like to talk about forgiveness as well. The thing that inevitably follows confession. In John, 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32 speaks of confession and forgiveness I'll quote it a little bit in length here, but it's, I think, really potent. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the summer heat. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness also plays a large part in the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Right? Interestingly, this is the only part of the prayer that Jesus continues to elaborate on after he's concluded the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 14 through 15, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a hard passage. We can't plumb its depths right now. But it will suffice to say this. If we're holding on to grudges and anger in our relationships, that unforgiveness tarnishes the freedom that we have in Christ. Christ later teaches a parable called the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, where he elaborates on this point. To summarize, there's a servant who's in a massive amount of debt to his Lord, and his Lord forgives that debt. Free. Go ahead. A debt he had really no hope of paying off, like, for his entire life. There's no way it was going to happen. Now, instead of freely forgiving those who owed him money as in the overflow of this grace, he instead demands that they pay up and throws them in jail when they don't. His Lord hears of this and throws him in jail until he should pay the debt that he originally owed. In Jesus Christ, we have a massive debt that's been paid for us, one we could never hope to pay off. All of our sin, all of the wrong that we've done has been forgiven through Jesus and because he took that penalty when he died on the cross. The debts that we could not repay have been forgiven and we've been restored to an intimate relationship with the Father. And as a result of that, We should overflow with forgiveness to those who have sinned against us, who have hurt us. When we start to think about what's owed us instead of what we used to owe to God, we shut God out. A river of grace should flow unhindered from the heart of God through us into one another. 
Now, there's certainly other conversations that need to be had here. Sometimes human relationships can get really broken, and forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation, especially in instances of abuse and hostility. However, there are many small-scale micro-debts, I'll say, that we can forgive every day, and that's how we practice. That's how we become more like Jesus. When your spouse is sharp with their words, when a friend is sharp with their words, you have the opportunity to say, God, you have forgiven me of so much. Help me extend that grace to my spouse. It doesn't have to be some big argument, right? It's the little things, the little, the tone, the inflection, the small things that you know you shouldn't be offended by, but you are, right? You can brush it off and say, that wasn't a big deal, but it, it gotcha. It's hanging out in here, and it's not going away until you forgive. Someone slights you or tries to take you down a peg at work, you can say the same thing. Lord, help me extend the grace you have so freely given me to my coworker, right? If we instead choose to hold these things and we let them sit in the ponds of our minds, we become angry, jaded, poisonous people. That's not what God desires for his children. He wants you to invite him into your hurts. Let him help dress those wounds. He wants to be a part of the process. Don't shut him out from that. Of course, all this starts as we acknowledge our sins to God and receive his grace and forgiveness so that it can then flow out to others. That's what we're going to do now as the band comes back up. We're going to take a few moments to reflect repent and recenter ourselves on Jesus. We do this in light of the Lord's Supper. This beautiful image of sustenance and grace that Jesus has asked us to do in remembrance of him and his sacrifice for us. When you're ready, there'll be a couple songs. Come and take the bread, dip it in the wine. The bread symbolizing Jesus' body and the blood and the wine representing his blood. It's a reminder that in all things God wants to be present with you. He wants to be your daily bread. He wants to be the one you rely on. He wants you to invite him in. Let's come to him this morning. Father God. We thank you for waking us up this morning. Now I'd ask that you show us where we've been neglectful of you, where we've ignored you, where we've shut you out of our lives, Lord, and help us to repent of those things, to turn around from those things and to open ourselves your presence in our life. Father, that's not easy. That's really hard. There's walls of stubborn resistance that keep us from doing that, Lord. I pray you would melt those walls right now. You would melt everything that's keeping your sons and daughters from you, and you would help them come this morning. Renew our minds. Make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.